You're fed up with the 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. So this is the Business Breaks podcast episode three with your co-hosts John Byrne and myself Dante Healy. So the topic of this episode is going to be about competition versus collaboration and when does it make sense to share resources with a competitor or another company in order to gain a strategic benefit with the eventual aim of growing your business and also de-risking that growth to a certain extent. So we're going to consider what makes collaboration successful, why is it important, where can it fail and share a few case studies we've either experienced ourselves or we've read recently and researched online. So John, let's start with why is collaboration important? Well, it it can help do, it it can help speed up the process. You're trying to do everything in-house yourself. That can take an awful long time. You might run out of money long before you actually make a return. You collaborate with somebody who has certain expertise you lack. Immediately, you've, you can start making returns with less investment. So I think it's important from that regard that it, it also gives access to both sides to expertise that they may not have internally and may not need internally for the rest of their business. Just this one area, you know, as a joint venture with somebody else, that your expertise plus their expertise is brilliant for this. But for the rest of your business, you don't need that. So there's no, it's a waste of money investing in it. As I was saying, so that would be the main reason I can think of for collaborating, especially for collaborating with somebody who could be competition, either is now or could be in the future. Yeah, that makes sense. And as you say, speeding up, building capabilities and expertise in areas where you may not have that, it takes time to grow and develop so why not leverage someone else's already mature capability in order to grow and it might not be just capability in the sense of a domain but also geography i remember in my early career I was working for a plumbing company based in the UK and they were obviously well-established family brand. They were acquired by a Swiss parent company also in the building industry. And what they did was they acquired this smaller UK-based company because they were pan-European. They embedded all the processes and what they got from the UK-based company was the industry relationships, so the customer base, the strategic partnerships, and they used that in order to distribute their own products and services. And they were very successful. They had a very superior technologically advanced plumbing product. But once they grew to a certain size within the market and got market share in the premium sector, they disposed of that smaller UK-based manufacturing business and actually sold it off to a competitor. So it's um, that was a very, very coherent strategy that took about 10 years to realise from acquisition to disposal. And that was, in my mind, a very successful, shall we say, joint venture, albeit not a collaboration as such, although you could argue that the two companies were collaborating, albeit it was a collaboration of unequal partners, with one being the parent company. And that can be the issue then as well, if you're going to go into um, a collaboration with another company, you need to look at, well, what's What's their strategy? Why do they want to go into that collaboration with you? Is it an unequal partnership? You know, even if the initial things look like it's equal, are they just missing one thing that you're bringing to it? 
because if the, and is that that one thing something they may be looking to develop themselves? You know, if it's something that they that the rest of their business doesn't do, you're fine because they're not going to develop it themselves. But if it's that one thing that is something they are looking to develop themselves, and then you're just a shortcut to get this product or whatever it is, the service in as collaboration. In reality, you could be, you might not be the shortcut to getting the service or product. You might be the shortcut to then getting the capability. And then they just push you out aside and, and use, you know, the thing. The, the obvious, well, it probably wasn't obvious at the time, but, you know, the, the um, which is, is well documented. So I think we're okay to mention the name of the company, but the, the giant bicycles, that they were a manufacturing partner, a great collaboration with another company for quite a while. And I've forgotten now which bike manufacturer it was that hired them. But they then lost their own capability to manufacture the bikes and started um, introducing giants to the the supply chain, all the distribution networks. So then Giant, obviously, you know, at a certain stage realized, you know, we'd be making much more money, we'd be much more profitable if we did the whole thing ourselves instead of going through them. So they had all the distribution channel te- contacts made. So they stopped being an outsourced manufacturing company and just sold their own product. Now, I'm not saying Giant were planning that from the beginning. They probably weren't. They're just seeing an opportunity. But the, the one thing they were missing, if they once the other company gave up its manufacturing ability, the one thing that Giant were missing was the distribution networks. So by giving them the distribution networks, that was their shortcut to being able to expand and go themselves. So you kind of have to be very careful when you're thinking who you're going to go and collaborate with. What's it, what, what are they lacking? What are you bringing to the thing? If you're bringing something that they could duplicate, chances are they may duplicate it themselves and then push you aside. So um, that's that's a big risk. And there's so many case studies of that, uh, especially when bigger organisations acquire smaller former competitors. I mean, the big one coming from the car industry, I, I think about BMW and when they acquired Land Rover, they basically used that to create their own SUV. And then once they once they got the capability and the understanding and the IP, they disposed of that business to Ford and Ford realized that they'd severely underinvested. So it took them ages to actually get Land Rover up to a certain state. When an unequal partner knows that they're lacking something, like maybe a specific variation of a product, they just haven't got the in-house knowledge. They can just, why not just acquire it, take it, appropriate it, and then dispose of the business. Because what's the point in having two versions of the same product? Because, yeah. That's inefficiency right there. You rationalize. And therefore, if you're if you're looking to grow your own brand, you're not going to be motivated to invest in the other brand. And again, when it's when it's a a question of jobs, obviously, the one who is who has the greater authority will decide, well, I want to protect my people. And again, in business, that's that's kind of not always it's not always about commercial commercially what's the most profitable in that moment it's also longer term what are my interests because a lot of business decisions are subjective regardless of whether you know their their strategic alliances or not sorry I, I guess we're not talking much about strategic alliances but more acquisitions so are there any strategic alliances um, that have inspired you ones that have gone really well well I suppose actually some of the the ones that have gone really well have, have been the ones where expertise is not held or needed by one of the big parties especially so the the, the typical one is the TMSC the 
chip manufacturer. It, it like it gets into alliances. It doesn't just make a standard chip and then sell it. So it's not just a supplier. It gets into alliances with with the likes of Apple, and they've helped them to develop much smaller chip, you know, nanometer processes, which they can then sell to their other clients as well. Obviously, after a certain period of exclusivity for, for Apple, but. That seems to work really well for a couple of reasons. Number one, the the, the manufacturing company, uh, TSMC or TMSC, whichever I get the things mixed up, they're not going to be competing with Apple in any of Apple's areas or in any of the other companies who use them areas. By the same token, the likes of Apple and there aren't going to suddenly start investing billions in their own chip manufacturing facilities. They've invested in TMSC's manufacturing uh, facilities, and they have some of them that are exclusively for manufacturing Apple chips. But that, that you look at it and you think that works really well because it's not in either company's interest, you know, to, 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 to compete. You know, to take over and do it. That even if, if um, Apple gets all the expertise that the, you know their outsourced company have, they're not going to bring it in house. It just costs too much, and it's, it's not what they do. You know that that thing. So the only the only risk that there is really for TSMC in, in or TMSC in that situation is if somebody else comes along and wins the competition from Apple. But they seem to collaborate a lot, you know, with, with the investment and that. So they've made it very expensive now for Apple to leave them, that they have to start from scratch with somebody else, and which means they'd have plenty of warning of what was happening. And as long as they don't do that really to upset, you know, their, their clients. And they, they do that with a few different clients. It's not just Apple. That just happens to be the, you know, the biggest one at the moment. So that works really well. But then you've got ones that work absolutely terribly. And the one I'm thinking there is is back before smartphones, back to feature phones, was, was Samsung, who did outsource manufacturing for a lot of companies. But what those companies found was, and, and when you look at the, you know, what happened at the time, was a lot of those companies then, you know, they outsourced manufacturing of certain things to Samsung. And then a while later, there was a legal battle between those companies and Samsung that those companies felt a lot of Samsung's newer products were basically very much copying what they had outsourced to Samsung to manufacture. I won't comment on thing, but that that's a statement of fact that you know companies that used Samsung as an outsourcer then a while later got into legal difficulties with Samsung over the you know the accusations were made that you know Samsung had copied what they were actually supposed to be outsourced manufacturing. And, you know, that, but that was, you know, you'd almost think, well, that's obviously going to happen because Samsung also manufactured feature phones. And now it's, it's smartphones, although I don't think anybody uses Samsung to manufacture smartphones for them. But when there was feature phones, they definitely did. And that's it. So, you know, and, and the differences there was that they, they were outsourcing stuff to Samsung who um, were clearly in competition with them, just had bigger factories, you know, whereas when you're going with the chips, with, with TSMC and that, they're not in competition with anyone other than other chip manufacturers. So, you know, Intel outsourcing to TSMC might cause problems later on, and there's rumours that that's what Intel are considering doing, or they were. But the other then rumour is that Intel themselves were planning on becoming an outsourced manufacturer, that they wouldn't just manufacture their own chips, they'd manufacture for other people as well. So um, that would be a bad collaboration, I think, for the, because they're clearly in competition with each other. And I think that's where the um, the issue could be that, you know, you look and you think, are, are we competition for each other? Because if we're competition for each other, then um, in, in a big way, in the exact, you know, thing, well then what our advantage is that they want to collaborate with us for, once they suss that out, we're no longer 
collaborating that are back to in competition. So I think it works best when you've got two completely different things that they do. They're not in competition with each other at all, but they both can bring something to the market for this particular collaboration that both need that's not a separate product you know tsmc needs this product for all their customers apple need these chips for all their products it's not an either one's best interest to and neither one can take over you know tsmc are not going to suddenly start making computers full computers and and smartphones so that that would be the, the best way i think of of the best example one of the best examples of the collaboration that seems to be working and i can't really see a reason for it to stop in the near future yeah, that makes sense. And to an extent, the potential for competition where one party sees that the other party is making money and they think, actually, I can do this myself with not much effort and replicate your business model so that I can take those a share of the profit and a share of the market, which could un- undermine the trust, which is necessary for a collaboration to work successfully. And coming to competition when you've got strategic supplier relationships, there's always that underlying threat that one of your strategic partners might also be enabling a competitor and when you're sharing information how do you have those sort of like firewalls and those guardrails to ensure that your ip that you have to possibly share with your strategic partner doesn't inadvertently get in the hands of competitors because i remember working for a company um some of the engineers would say yeah um, we we we'd work with suppliers, and I, I there were some very senior managers who managed to get into competitors' manufacturing plants disguised as supplier employees. <laughs> So it just happens, and I'm sure that more than a few competitors went into our plants to see what was going on. Even though, you know, you do the due diligence, you make sure they sign the register, they provide, to an extent, some form of ID, and then you do a social media search. So we had our own, shall we say, security protocol where people would actually have to provide their name, provide a photograph on entry, and people who don't know about industrial espionage will probably not not appreciate <laughs> the fact that it, it can and does happen um so i don't know if that's a bombshell or not but um i guess coming to an example apple pay and paypal i don't know if you heard about that example i read on the internet that there was a collaboration a um a business relationship that was under negotiation between apple and paypal where Apple Pay and PayPal, should I say, and they when when Apple found out that they were partnering with Samsung, they dis, they pulled out of the deal with PayPal. So again, probably a very careful move on Apple Pay's part, and maybe for those reasons, sharing technology, sharing IP, and then the risk of you know losing some sort of competitive advantage they may have against their biggest competitor, especially given the history between those. Mm. There. Um, and as I said, you know, the, the, the history of Samsung in particular, that, the, you know, the background of constantly being getting into legal skirmishes with other companies who felt they were stealing their ideas, you know, that that, that would be an issue. And then again, you know, even even when you think that you're in a collaboration with a company that will never be competition, you 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 may find yourself very wrong. I mean, the, the typical example being back when the iPhone started between Apple and Google, they were collaborating on everything. You know, Google had pretty much first choice apps almost for everything on the iPhone and then turned out that they were, you know, working on Android initially, which I don't think Apple were aware of. And certainly they weren't aware that they 
changed Android from being effectively a BlackBerry knockoff to being a, an iPhone OS knockoff at the time. And, you know, there's, there's no two ways about it. I know there'll be a lot of Android fans that will be up in arms about saying that. But when you look at what Android was back before the iPhone, it was very much identical looking to BlackBerry. And then after that, you know, it's very much identical looking to iPhone OS. They've, they've taken it and they've tweaked it and that but there's a clear link there between them and that call you know you, you kind of do wonder you know it would be interesting to get a look at their numbers and be able to work out did that pay off for them you know yes they're making a lot of money with the advertising and all that on android but you kind of wonder well they don't get they don't get licensing for android it's just that they get to put their apps on but they've lost out now on the ios apps and you know most of the money tends to be on those spent on those devices you know has, has what they've lost out on by being kind of blacklisted from by apple has that been over you know have they made up for that by having android when you take into account the costs of having to continually be updating android and trying to innovate it and you know all that you, you do wonder did it pay off for them you know they had no competition in the maps really now they've got apple maps and um, which despite its problems at the beginning seems to have matured quite well in certain areas you know in other areas it's absolutely terrible uh, by areas i mean geographical areas you know that like dublin happens to have the uh, look around the, the you know effectively the uh, photos of the roads and that for apple but very few other places do. you know we, we happen to be one of the the few I think London, yeah, London does as well. But you go outside of London, very few places in the UK even have, you know, Apple Maps look around feature, but they, everywhere has Google Street View. Google, if they play their cards differently, would probably be still be on every device, but they'd also be on the iOS devices. You know, Symbian and WebOS and Windows Phone and that probably would have still all used Google apps as standard. And unfortunately, the Apple users uh, tend to be the more lucrative segment of the market as well. So, yeah, yeah I think there's been a mass a missed revenue opportunity on Google's part. Whether the gamble was worth it, Google will probably present it as a success story or a non-event but yeah I, I mean, it would be very hard to argue that Google, that Android has not been successful. It has been very successful. But I just wonder, from a bottom line point of view, was it worth it? You know, would, would Google have been any worse off had they not made Android? Yeah, they would have had the base apps on iOS, because I don't think Apple would have bothered with maps or with a number of other things that they've done purely, you know, to replace Google, they made a concerted effort to get Google off their system nearly, and they charged billions for Google to be the default search engine and that on it. Would they have charged as much previously? I think you could argue that if Apple had the only platform for mobile apps, at least on the iPhones, could argue it's a monopoly and cry antitrust foul, um, I, and, and probably be in more of a position, whereas now actually I think Google's given Apple a favour, done them a favour by saying, well actually, you don't have to take iOS you can use Android. I think actually, though, when you look at it, I, I, iOS is as big as it was going to be. They sell everything they manufacture. They can't manufacture any, any more than they, they currently are. So iOS is what it is. And then you've got Android. But if Android didn't exist, I mean, the, um, I can't remember what it was called originally. It's on the TVs. LG using now WebOS. I, I can't, it was a HP. Had a, I can't remember who it was. It was Palm. Palm OS. Wasn't that what it was originally? But WebOS is gone. BlackBerry is gone. Windows Phone 
is gone and there was there was another one uh, Symbian is gone so they're all gone Apple didn't get rid of them because Apple doesn't have a big enough market share it can't have a big enough market share it's not capable of doing it Android got rid of all of them so you know, and I think that was a shame because if, if if Android didn't come on stream, they would all be made. They would have all had enough market share to survive between them. Maybe one of them would have disappeared or something, but you'd have you'd still have three, if not four, of them. You know, around, and they were all very different to each other. So the innovation would have been, you know, you'd have got very different looks, very different feels to them. And I think customers have lost out because of Android, because Android did all then our business. It was too easy for, you know, the, the manufacturers to say, well, sure, I'll just, I'll use Android. It doesn't cost me anything. Rather than I'll, I'll pay for this or, you know, I'll try to develop my own. And even those who are developing their own, like Samsung, it was a, the Tegan or whatever they call it. It's just a, a fork of Android. It's not a, a real unique thing. The last unique one was Windows Phone, which, you know, you can say wasn't particularly good, but it, it couldn't really develop because it was swamped. But, but Apple wasn't big enough to get rid of all them. Maybe the BlackBerry, Apple got rid of that because it took its specific market, the top end market. But all the other ones that um, were kind of going for a lower market, Android wiped them out. Um, slight, not, not really to do a collaboration, but, you know, a slight little tangent there. That, you know, it would have been interesting to see how they developed. I mean, even then, it's it's still competing. Mm. And, and coming back to collaboration, it's, it's having clusters of companies that are forming alliances, if you will, against other potential customers who are also forming similar alliances to compete. So you could have one set of alliances versus another. And then over time, they either grow and prosper together or they have a falling out and maybe they fail before they fall out. Maybe the falling out is is a is a result of the failure or it could be a pre- precursor to the failure because there's many things for a success in any business. Many things need to happen correctly at once. So there's many points of failure coming to when two parties are in it together uh, on a com- common endeavor. You can do things that perhaps end up leading to the demise of the relationship or the venture. Um, so, for example, poor strategy. You're basically, as we've discussed on entrepreneurship, you're basically doing the wrong thing. You've completely made a bad call. Assuming it's a good call or even a brilliant call, then it comes down to execution. So what what leads to poor execution? Poor planning and coordination, maybe the trust isn't there, and that could lead to imperfect communication and lack of commitment from both parties, because if they don't feel it's going to benefit them, then they don't invest the necessary time, attention and resources into it. And then, yeah, perhaps there's even incompatible goals because they all have their own priorities on which which direction is more com- important or which component should be should take the forefront of the effort. And again, it's it's getting all the pieces, those separate collection of capabilities working together on that common endeavor to to achieve the outcomes. And then even after that, assuming it is successful, then how do you fairly distribute the rewards of that partnership? How do you justify what's equitable in terms of 
the contributions, the risks assumed, and therefore who should get the lion's share of the rewards. It may be that the smaller party has done all of the work, brought all the expertise, but the larger party says, well, yeah, it was our idea, so we'll take the lion's share of the rewards. Uh, thank you very much. Here's your here's your morsels, and uh, bye-bye. So you look at some of the collaborations that have happened recently, so I'm, I'm thinking where BioNTech and Pfizer on, you know, one of the RNA vaccines for COVID. So it was clear who brought what there. BioNTech brought the technology, the IP. Pfizer brought the manufacturing capability and the money, the, the investment. You wonder how that's going to end, because I would imagine clearly Pfizer wanted access to the research, because they hadn't been, a lot of big farmer had not been looking at RNA, messenger RNA technology. It was too niche. It was too um, small scale. Now suddenly, given that seem to work with vaccines, it's much bigger. So, you know, they, they they will have wanted to get some kind of head start on that, that to catch up, not a head start. They needed to catch up. So it jumped there. And BioNTech, you know, were a very small scale thing. They didn't have the capability to scale up their factories, but they have now that they, they've manufactured, they've increased their manufacturing capability. So you, you wonder, you know, given that that's the situation, they probably will go into competition with each other, but it, it may not be a falling out. It may be that they both know exactly what they were getting from it. It was a temporary one-off thing. BioNTech wanted to scale up its manufacturing and was going to be learning that off Pfizer. Pfizer wanted to catch up on the technology and it was going to be learning that. They both knew in advance this is what the other party wants from the arrangement. And then all is, is, is good in the world when they do go their separate ways. That uh, nobody is, is, you know, there's no repercussions, legal repercussions, because it was agreed in advance. Or do they both think that, or did one of them think that this is, you know, their their, their side of it safe? And then realise the others had, had learned from them and had gone off in their own direction. And then there's legal, you know, or, or just a big falling out. Another example I can think of from years, many years ago, maybe specific to our Ireland, I'm not sure, but a long time ago, well, not that long ago, probably about 30 years ago, um, in Ireland, 7-Up was distributed by Coca-Cola. So any you went into any restaurant or cafe that had Coke, it would have 7-Up on top. Now, 7-Up normally was Pepsi. You know, I think everywhere else in the world it was Pepsi, and it was Pepsi now in Ireland, that, that you have 7-Up and Pepsi and Sprite and Coke. But they... They both knew there was no kind of big legal battle. They both knew when that, that distribution contract was up, 7-Up were moving over to Pepsi the way they were in the rest of the world and the restaurants that have Pepsi and Coke were ringing in and replacing 7-Up with Sprite. Everybody knew that was happening between the two companies and, and even the, the customers, to be honest. So there was a collaboration to serve a purpose. Coke needed, weren't ready to bring Sprite into the country for whatever reason, so they just used 7-Up. 7-Up needed distribution, so they used Coke. But they knew from the pretty much the time they signed the contract, this was not going to last, that when this contract ended, Coke will have gotten its act together with Sprite, and 7-Up will have, you know, Pepsi will have been in enough places for 7-Up to move over to them, the way they have it in the rest of the world. And um, yeah, there was no falling out as a result of that. It just happened smoothly, because it was planned for, I'd say from the beginning, from the very first time they signed the contract with each other, they knew this is for X amount of years, and it will not be renewed. And I wonder if Pfizer and BioNTech have, have a similar arrangement. It would make sense if they did. And that's interesting because I've seen it in the past where you have two types of agreement in terms of a partnership. One could be a strategic partnership where you have a memorandum of understanding, which is not legally binding, but it's more of a moral agreement in writing what both parties will 
contribute to the endeavour and codes of conduct, etc., etc. And then there's the legal agreement where both parties pool their share of resources and properly formalise the arrangement, such as a joint venture. So then that's a proper legal agreement with all the various controls and due diligence in place. So again, it depends on whether BioNTech is really another form of supplier or contractor that are providing their services with Pfizer's support. And perhaps it's all in the purchasing documents those are the, the the foundations of the legal agreement so maybe Pfizer's purchasing department and strategy department have gone through that already in advance and understand well this is what we're doing for BioNTech we're building their capability up but they're helping us to get product to market faster in an area where we don't have the expertise and in this instance, it was COVID. And given where we are with viruses like monkeypox, <laughs> there's going to be, it seems like this is going to be the new normal where we're going to have various strains of virus coming up and recurring. So maybe longer term, that strategic advantage has been lost by Pfizer. But to be honest, given how organizations grow and bloat and become very complacent maybe they couldn't couldn't really innovate and they had to they had no choice but to go with an organization that was more of a startup culture and mentality in order to get that get that outcome so maybe they've you know Pfizer came in with the investment BioNTech came in with the vision and the expertise and the drive and energy and what's left after the arrangement is what what has already been formally agreed will be carved out if not if Pfizer feel like they got the short end of the stick and should have asked for more <laughs> then we'll soon see I guess I suppose the only thing is I will get on a little bit of a moral high horse there with the uh, monkey pot that it has come here to Europe to, to America and that and they're rolling out the smallpox vaccine for the you know at risk um, people because apparently that vaccine works on it and they've known for a long long time that that vaccine works on it it wasn't just something that they discovered recently and monkeypox has been endemic in certain parts of Africa for several years now. You kind of wonder if they had a vaccine for it, they knew the vaccine worked. Why didn't they give it to the people in those areas of Africa to protect them from it? Why did they let it become endemic in that part of Africa? That that seems morally wrong to me. And now the world is kind of on the verge of reaping the the the, the results of that. That it has spread out of out of Africa where it could have been stopped in Africa. If you know, it does make you wonder how come when a European catches it, they'll roll out the smallpox vaccine immediately. But when an African was catching it, it was oh well, it's endemic. It doesn't come out of Africa. We don't have to worry. That's pretty interesting point because, yeah, it all comes down to self-interest and probably short-sightedness mm. because you're thinking, well, actually, yeah, what were they thinking? That it would be self-contained and ignoring mm. it. And these are the uh, repercussions in an interconnected world where if you ignore something in one area, chances are it's going to eventually make its way to your location, whether you like it or not, especially with migration being what it is. Mm. It, um... But even without that, you know, just morally, even if it was never going to leave Africa, if they had a vaccine, they didn't have to develop it. They didn't have to spend billions. Make, they just had to manufacture more of it and send it down there. Even if it was never going to leave Africa, why didn't they do that? I don't get that. Um, that's just one of those you know, weird things that popped up. And nobody seems to ask the question. None of the reporters that I have asked that particular question, why Why didn't you just vaccinate them all if it was endemic for the last several years and you've had a vaccine and you've new work? As a pessimist, do you think it's possibly because uh, people already know that people have no morals, by yeah, and large? That's it, unfortunately, I think, yeah. 
that certain people, you know, are not considered important because the, the vaccines are available over here and the people suffering are over there and people over there aren't important enough for us to send the vaccines. It's a damning indictment of the human race, really, and shows moral failings. I'm not saying there aren't great examples of human nobility, but yeah, I think there's more often than not people who are willing to betray each other for a small advantage, sadly enough, and hence... That's why controls, legal agreements are in place to, to supplement the trust that cannot be obtained by verbal agreements. That's it. And that's, and that's the risk as well, bringing the, to try and bring it back to collaborations. That's the risk as well. That self-interest and it's not just self-interest, though. It's a lack of concern for somebody who is not you. Totally. So if you think if you think that the business partners are saint and you can completely trust them with your life, then fair enough. Your life and your wife. <laughs> And I might edit that one out as well. So, but um, yeah, and it's funny, actually, I'm going to go off on a tangent. Growing up, I had a friend and if he ever listens to it, he'll know who he is. But he was he was someone who I admired because he was like a complete ladies man. But by that same token, the fact that he was such a ladies man meant you wouldn't trust him with your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just that human instinct, you know, where you and you can see that in business where you know that if people are given too much leeway, the temptation comes in. And the only things that prevent people when they when they're in positions of trust for, from getting caught is that they don't get too greedy with it because you have to allow a little bit of slack. Hence, I know even as a cost accountant when materials go missing it can be through irregularities but you know you've used x amount of materials to produce a product you know how much waste there is so if you and you know roughly what the scrap will be now if you take errors into account you estimate probably a variation of five percent and if you're getting ten percent you know something's going wrong and it's probably somewhere in in the people so yeah and it's funny actually there's been more than a few instances where i've actually seen or observed people getting caught pilfering and even, even that, I know from when my uh, dad was, you know, he was an upholsterer, he had um, his own businesses and he specialised in making beds. And there's not a lot of waste there. You know, you don't really write off a spring because you you made this an error in the sewing. You know, you, you write off the bit of material and, and recur it and that. So waste wasn't a big issue. And he didn't really care if somebody helped themselves to something, you know, be something small, like, you know, their bed at home, the casters had broken, they'll take a couple of casters home with them and fix it. He didn't care. But there was one guy one time when he's doing it, and what he was noticing was there were, you know, you'd buy the springs and rolls at the time, and there'd be like 10 springs in a row. And what he was noticing was rolls were going missing. And it was somebody, and that was just pure greed, you know. When people were taking little things just for their own kind of, you know, to replace a few wheels on the, the bottoms of their bases, even the drawers, you know, sometimes if a drawer broke and somebody would just take, normally they just say to me, Dad, I'm just taking a drawer, is that okay? Yeah, go on. And that would be it. But even when they didn't say it to him, he didn't like it when they didn't say it to them, but he wasn't that bothered about it. But rolls of springs going missing, you're kind of thinking, hang on a second. So that's, um, <laughs> now somebody is just getting greedy. And that's what it was. He, he was able to set a trap for them. He knew who it was. That what they were doing was they were taking the springs and selling it to his competitors. But what they didn't realise was that at that stage in Dublin, in the bed manufacturing there were lots of small things like that they were all competitors but they also collaborated they all went to the pub together they all talked they all helped each other out 
you know, when somebody was running low on springs or was starting off, they could go to the others and they'd, you know, you had a few springs. You, you wouldn't tell them necessarily your role, but you could give them a few springs to get them started back up and that, that they collaborated with each other. So when your man was selling the stuff to my dad's competitors, what he didn't realise was that the competitor was saying it to my dad, you know, are you aware that he's selling? He actually didn't even say that to him because he just assumed my dad knew and he said something to me dad um, in the pub one day. You know, cheers for that because um, it saved me having to, to drive up to Northern Ireland where the he was getting his supplies from my dad got them from Loud but the, the other guy was getting them from Northern Ireland and he just you know saved me having to make a trip up there and my dad was the first he heard of it and he said what do you mean he said oh yeah sure I've gotten about three rolls off him over the last two weeks <laughs> so <laughs> you know that backfired but that was pure greed if your man had just even given him one or two springs <laughs> wouldn't, have, wouldn't have been noticed so, or cared about really <laughs> and that's that's a great that's a great story as well because it shows how important it is to be in touch with the market and a chance conversation is probably better than anything for identifying those sort of discrepancies and certainly capturing very important messages but yeah i think i think that's a great story shall we end it at that and then to wrap up i guess what what are we saying then in terms of successful collaborations? No way you're going into one. Think about the strategic benefits, what strengths you bring, what strengths your strategic partner will bring. Having a sense of trust, and if you lack trust, then get it in writing at least. And just so I would say, just make sure that what you're bringing is not to prop up a single weakness that the other mm. side, because if it's a single weakness that the other side has, chances are they're working to strengthen it. And once they've strengthened it, they don't need you anymore. Yeah. Make sure that you're coming in as two equals and that yeah. neither side can really operate without the other, that the only way they can get rid of you is to buy you out. Yeah. But they can't actually just develop your serve, your side of things themselves in-house. Yeah, copy-paste your IP in order, to, in order to fill a gap that they have strategically. Protect yourself at all times, as they say. Actually, that's a fighting analogy, right? <laughs> so I'm not saying that when you go into a strategic partnership, you should be ready for battle. You say that for your competitors, figuratively speaking, but at the same time, protect yourself yeah, and make sure you don't leave your back. Yeah, sorry. At the beginning especially, just make sure that you, you fully understand not only what your reasons are for going into the collaboration, but what the other side's reasons are as well. Be sure you know that. Because even if their side is planning on, you know, just coming into a collaboration for a few years and then pulling out and doing it on their own, dropping you, as long as you're aware of that and you're happy with that, there's no reason not to. Like, like with the seven up coca-cola thing in ireland of, of those things they both knew that it wasn't going to last why the other side wanted to be with them that was filling a need the other side just needed temporarily filling but it suited both parties to do it regardless so they did it and they haven't fallen out there's no never a big legal battle there was nothing that just you know overnight today the contract ended tomorrow all the pepsi restaurants had seven up which they never had and all the coke restaurants were now doing sprite end of story and everybody was okay with that but you know so it, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you know the other side only need one thing off you that okay i'm not going to get into this collaboration but just be aware of that and be making your own plans then that when the other side no longer need what you have to offer what are you going to do then have your exit strategy they have their exit strategy ready have your exit strategy ready and make the most of the collaboration while it lasts thank you john and with that we conclude episode three of business breaks thank you very much everyone thank you Dante. thank you john this podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business it and digital finance 
Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations. 